This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. Today on the best of Not Your Century, I got a couple of iconic moments, one in the United Kingdom and one in the United States. You know, my favorite thing about doing this show is how much I learn about this wide variety of historical events and subjects. Sometimes I know pretty much nothing about the subject of that day's episode. And the second story today is one of those, the great train robbery in England in the early 1960s. I don't think I'd ever even heard of it before I did that episode. The first story today, that's a different one for me. As an old sports writer, of course, I know a lot about the NFL. I know pretty much the outlines of the early history of it back in the 1920s. But what fascinated me doing the research for this episode was learning about Walter Camp. Now, that's one of those names from early football that I'd heard Couldn't have told you anything about him except he was an early football guy. He basically created American football like he invented it. Like there's a guy who invented quarterback and first down and it was Walter Camp. And I didn't know that. So that's what I learned in this episode. He just makes a little appearance. He's not really central to this story, but uh, he was a nugget for me. The guy who invented first down. Here's the story of the start of the NFL in 1920. September 17th, 1920, the National Football League is born. Sort of. It wasn't the National Football League yet. It was the American Professional Football Association, or APFA. It became the NFL in 1922, and it wasn't exactly new. College football was the big sport, but there had been pro teams since the 1890s. By the teens, there were various regional leagues around the Midwest and the East. They sometimes included college players, and they sometimes even played against college teams. This wasn't a great system for team owners. They had to engage in bidding wars for players, and there was always a danger that their best players would be poached by a team from another league. The solution? Form a single national league, with everyone following the same rules. Four teams from a circuit called the Ohio League got together first, meeting in a car dealership in Canton and emerging as the American Pro Football Conference. They were the Canton Bulldogs, the Cleveland Tigers, the Dayton Triangles, and the Akron Pros. The next month, they invited teams from the New York Pro Football League and some independent teams to that same Canton car dealership. There were so many people at this meeting that they had to sit on the running boards of the cars in the showroom. One of them was George Hallis an employee of the A.E. Staley Manufacturing Company, owner of the Decatur Staley's. The new members of the American Professional Football Association agreed to respect each other's contracts, not hire college players, and obey a salary cap. There was no set schedule. Teams would set up their own games as the season went along, and at the end of the year, the teams would vote for a champion. The first winner? The Akron Pros. And they elected a president, Jim Thorpe, who also happened to be a player on the Canton Bulldogs. That might seem like a conflict of interest, but the hero of the 1912 Olympics was the most famous guy in the league, and they were hoping his name would get him in the papers. It did, a little bit. The first mention of the American Professional Football Association in the faraway San Francisco Chronicle came in early December, when the sports page had a small story headlined, Jim Thorpe Still Playing Football. It noted that the Buffalo All-Americans had beaten the Canton Bulldogs 7-3. to 
despite a strong game from Thorpe, the former star at Carlisle Indian School. That was the college in Pennsylvania that Thorpe had attended, and it was threatening to disown him for playing pro football, or at least to withdraw the letters he'd earned there. Like a lot of colleges at the time, Carlisle prohibited its graduates from playing professional football, though its enforcement mechanism, withdrawing athletic letters, was pretty weak sauce. That was the subject of the article the next time the Chronicle mentioned the new pro football league. In mid-December, the father of football himself chimed in that the idea of colleges pulling letters from players because they turned pro was, this is a technical football term, silly. The father of football was Walter Camp. He'd coached Stanford to the national championship in 1892, but before that he'd played at Yale in the way early days. And that nickname wasn't just messing around. He invented the line of scrimmage and yard lines and downs and the quarterback position, among other things. He also said he thought pro football was going to be a success. I am convinced it is here to stay, he said. There's no reason why it should fail. And he was right. The NFL staggered through the 20s with teams coming and going, moving around, losing money. Things started to stabilize in the 30s, and when television came along, the NFL surpassed college football and eventually all other American sports. There are two teams still going who came out of that meeting at the car dealership in Canton on September 17, 1920. The Racine Cardinals, who played not in Racine, Wisconsin, but on Racine Avenue in Chicago, are now the Arizona Cardinals. And in 1921, Mr. A.E. Staley gave the Decatur Staleys to his employee and coach, George Hallis. And he gave him $5,000 to keep the name Staley's for one year, even though the team was moving from Decatur to Chicago. So it wasn't until 1922 that they became the Chicago Bears. All right, from Canton, Ohio, we go across the pond to another provincial city, Birmingham in England, where in 1964, Charlie Wilson escaped from Winson Green Prison. Charlie was one of the great train robbers from 1963, which, like I say, that was news to me. I knew about a silent movie in the very early days of the movies called The Great Train Robbery, but I didn't know about this real one in England. One update on this episode, towards the end of it, you're going to hear that one of the great train robbers is still alive. His name is Bob Welch. The update is, as far as I know, he's still alive. The train gang has struck again. This time it was to get one of their own out of prison. August 12, 1964. Charlie Wilson was serving a 30-year sentence for his role in the great train robbery. That was a sensational holdup outside London in 1963. Prison break was pretty spectacular, too. Three men used a ladder to scale a wall of the maximum security prison, Winston Green, near Birmingham. They knocked out a guard, tied him up, took his keys, gave Wilson some civilian clothes, and sprung him from his cell. Then they used a rope ladder to go back over the wall and get away. The police were not surprised that one of the great train robbers made a break for it. They knew from their underworld sources that an escape committee had been formed. But they were surprised that an escape that took so much planning and coordination was pulled off so quickly. Wilson had only been inside for four months.
The great train robbery was committed in the early morning hours of August 8, 1963, by a gang of 17 men. It was a Royal Mail train making an overnight trip from Glasgow to London. The first car behind the engine was the HVP coach, High Value Packages. That's where there were big bags of money from banks in Scotland sending cash to their headquarters in London. And there was a lot of it that night, thanks to the bank holiday that had just happened. The gang knew all that. It was actually two gangs that had partnered up. The guys who came up with the idea of robbing the train were good at robbing, but they didn't know a lot about trains. So they recruited some lads who did, a bunch called the South Coast Raiders. Those boys knew how to rig the trackside signals to throw up a red light and make the engineer stop the train. Then they jumped on board, cracked the engineer on the head, and took over. The gang took most of the money on the HVP coach, but not all of it, because they'd given themselves a 30-minute time limit. They got about two and a half million pounds, equivalent to about $65 million today. When they left, they told the postal workers not to move for half an hour. That led Scotland Yard to believe that their hideout was within 30 miles of the robbery. That's where they focused their search. The coppers were right. The hideout was a place called Leatherslade Farm. It took the police five days to find it. The robbers had cleared out by then, but they'd left some evidence behind, including a palm print on a Monopoly game they'd played. Using money from the robbery! Cheeky! Most of the robbers were caught and tried, and they got long sentences. Charlie Wilson got 30 years for being the treasurer. England had no parole system. You just served your whole sentence. The robbers did go through an appeals process that reduced some of their sentences, but Wilson stayed away from it. That puzzled Scotland Yard. Until the jailbreak. Now they figured he hadn't wanted to take a chance on winning his appeal and getting transferred to a different cell or a different prison. That would have messed up the planning for his escape. Charlie Wilson was 32 years old when he escaped, a married father of three. He'd been an illegal bookmaker who eventually got together with the gang of thieves that came up with the train robbery. After his escape, he settled down with his family outside Montreal, and he evaded capture for four years until 1968. Once caught, he did another 10 years in prison, and he was the last of the great train robbery gang to get out. When he did, he went back to doing what he did best, being a criminal. He was living in Spain and involved in drug dealing when a man on a bicycle knocked on his front door and asked his wife if he could deliver a message to Charlie. She said he was around back getting the barbecue ready for a party. The man walked into the backyard and shot Charlie Wilson in the head. Charlie was 58. Most of the stolen money from the great train robbery was never recovered. The train engineer who got hit on the head, he suffered headaches for the rest of his life. He died of leukemia in 1970. His name was Jack Mills. Only one member of the great train robbery gang is known to be alive today. His name is Bob Welch, and he's 89 years old. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to yours.